This is the Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hatback Bar and Grill. Streaming live on the Seattle Sports app and at seattlesports.com. Yes, it is time for the Hot Stove once again. Welcome back. Gary Hill, Shannon Dreyer here. Shannon, it is great to see you as always. Good to see you too. We're still here. We're in Seattle, but we are getting so close. I, uh, just yesterday, I took out the big bag and brought it upstairs. The big bag that goes with me everywhere during the course of the baseball season. And mm-hmm. for the winter, it gets put away under the basement stairs. I don't see it all winter. And I just, I brought it out because my spring training packing is really just walking around the house and living my daily life and remember like, oh yeah, I'm going to need that. And then I throw it in the bag. So for like a three week stretch, the bag just sits in my office and I throw stuff in it. So right you up. show up in Arizona with nothing but fleeces and, it's just and, ran- and yeah, caps it's and everything ran- else. And then you have to go shopping. Yeah. Usually. Yes. That's usually the case. Uh, it, is, it might be a little chilly when we get there. It's a, it's an early. It's a long spring because of the WBC. I've been thinking about that. Yeah, I think I'm down there a week earlier than I normally am. Yeah. So we will have to adjust, and uh, we dare I say might need to bring boots. We're still calling you the voice of spring, right? Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, absolutely. I am the official voice of spring. <laughs> yes. It's going to usher in what is going to be a tremendous baseball season, and the voice of summer can take it once we get on the plane. <laughs> yes. I love the sound of that. Uh, I am really looking forward to this show. We are going to have Scott Service on, Mariner's manager. Mm-hmm. That's going to come up at the beginning of the show in just a few minutes. We're going to have Cooper Hummel on, get to know him a little bit. He, it's about time. Yeah, it is about he time. He was signed when? Yeah, it was It was a while. Uh, or trade. Trade, yeah. Yes. It, was one, it was early in the offseason. Yes. Yeah, very early. So, yes, it's time we learn about this Cooper Hummel. Portland, Oregon. <laughs> grew up a Mariner's fan. think you're really going to enjoy the Versatile. conversation. Yeah. And speaking of growing up Mariner's fan... We're going to talk to Dave Cameron. And I know a lot of Mariner fans, they hear the name Dave Cameron, and it's like, ah, yes. I have been waiting for this for so long, and I've been suggesting it at the radio station as well. He's hard to get. This is a big get. I don't know if you understand. This is a big get. He's busy. He is busy and uh, so important to the Mariners. But so fascinating along so many different lines. You can't just have one segment with Dave Cameron. You've got to have two. Yes, we're going to have two segments. It is a great story. Grew up a Mariners fan. USS Mariner, if you don't know, they went to Fangrass for a decade and started working for the Padres after that. The Padres hired him in their front office, and now he's a full-time member of the Seattle Mariners front office. The Mariners fan... Who was writing about the Mariners that got all this started is now helping make decisions and helping shape the Mariners roster. I think the whole thing is incredible. I love it. It happens, and it just speaks to the diversity of baseball right now and just so many different angles that you attack this sport. It's no longer just eyes. There are different, Mm. so many, and it's not just a scouting eye. There are so many different ways to look at this game, and everybody's looking for that little bit of extra. So, uh, you never know. And, and Dave is far from the only who has gone from uh, the website to a front office. 
Yes, that has definitely been a trend. He's one of the first, though, which uh, one of the groundbreakers. Jeff Sullivan, too, was also riding with him. It was in Opposing Tampa Bay. teams. They were opposing <laughs> blogs, best of friends, but right. opposing te- blogs and then opposing teams, which is just awesome. It's so great. And, and both quite good. Very good, yes. Uh, that conversation is going to be fun. We'll talk to Steve Sparks, one of our favorites. The Astros, I find so fascinating. Just everything kind of going on surrounding them. Of course, they won the World Series. They're going to be really good again this year. But especially the front office situation, there's there's a lot of things going on that I'm interested in. Yeah, they've kind of been the blueprint, and there's still things yeah. that you can look to them for that, especially. I mean, you look at the Mariners, and some of the progression is very similar. So if you mm-hmm. want to kind of wonder what next, that sometimes is a good place to look. But all of a sudden, this offseason, kind of a wrench thrown in that, and a big one. An absolutely big one with what has happened with the front office. Yeah, and Steve Sparks always gives us great insight and everything going on there. And he's as dialed in as anybody with every team in baseball. He knows as much about the Mariners as anyone else. It's pretty amazing. Absolutely. And a great guy to boot. Yes, absolutely. Uh, He's a great guy, no doubt. He would say the same of us. Uh... Yeah. I think so. He's a, he's a I good guy. So. He would. The NFL playoffs in full swing. The Hatback Bar and Grill is the perfect place to catch all the action. Come out this Sunday for the NFC and AFC Championship. Enjoy the great game day vibes. Visit hatback.com to make a reservation today. We have the Mariners manager, Scott Service, coming up right after this. Hot Stove continues. Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hatback Bar and Grill. Welcome back to the Hot Stove. Gary Hill, Shannon Dreyer with you. Brought to you by Steelheads Alley as we have Scott Service, Mariners manager with us. Scott, it's great to chat with you. How's your offseason going? It's going great, guys. Uh, it gets really short. There's no doubt about that. And we're, we're, we're coming up on, on spring training here uh, really shortly. And I'm excited. I'm excited to get back. Obviously, we had a really, uh, you know, tremendous season last year. And, you know, with a couple of additions we have to our ball club, everybody's anxious to get back together and see what 2023 can bring us. So I'm uh, looking forward to it. Scott, let's take it back a little bit. How do you unpack everything that, not just the entire season, but that last week? How, how long did it take to kind of just uh, get into your off season? It took a while. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta be honest, Shannon. Um, you know, with the way our season ended, with you know wearing such a high, and you know the the, the big games, certainly the, the series with Houston didn't go our way, but. Or, you know, getting a chance to reflect and look back. I'm really proud of our team. I thought we played extremely well, very competitive, obviously. Just, you know, a swing of the bat here or there, a pitch here or there. It certainly could have gone a, a different direction for us. But what a year. I mean, we take so much from it. Certainly getting in the playoffs the first time in a long time will, will help uh, a relatively. You know, we're a very young team still. I know it's going to help us going forward. What did you learn about yourself as a manager guiding your team through that season and all the big games and playoff games along the way? Uh, I think I've learned a lot through the years. Um, you know, last year was my seventh year uh, on the job. I think the biggest thing is just like uh, the, the value of really listening to players and, and the people around me. And, you know, I, I have, so much uh, trust and confidence in our coaching staff and you know what they bring to the mix and kind of the group of uh, our staff put together we really you know we bring different levels of experience different levels of uh, just uh, you know what we do and then being at the top of our game and what we do so learning how to lean on the people around me uh, I think I've gotten much better uh, with that through the years and 
but ultimately it's about the players. Uh, I've said that since day one, and what we have going right now in our, our clubhouse and on our rosters is a really good thing. We've got guys that certainly understand our standards and, and how we go about our work and kind of the environment around our team. And then we've got guys that you know, are holding each other accountable, and that's what it takes, uh, I think, to take the next step to get to the next level. And players believe in what we're doing. We've got good players. We've got good young players. And we have a hungry fan base. So, uh, you know, what else do you need? And it's been great, you know, looking at our team and watching this thing come together and, you know, seeing some of the young players come up, the trades we've made, the free agent signings, the whole thing coming together has been, been a lot of fun. Scott, a few weeks ago, I was kind of going through some of uh, the things that we did, listening to some interviews, reading some posts and whatnot that were written, and something that jumped out at me, and I'm glad I did this because it wasn't something that was top of mind, but a real interesting development last season was there was a point in time where uh, you look at whatever the expectations were on this team, but I, I think everybody wanted them to get to the postseason, and a lot of people thought, well, it'd be great if they got into a wild card game and played a wild card round. At some point, and I don't know where it was driven, but I know you were there, and then I was hearing it from player after player after player. There was a true belief, and I'm not, you know, I'm talking true belief, that you were more than a wild card team. Your goals were bigger than that. Then to a man, uh, I think it was in guys' heads that, you know what, we can take this the distance. How did that evolve? Where did that come from? Confidently grew you know, with our team. We had the great stretch there through July, the 14-game winning streak. Um, we, we were winning big series against the best teams in the league, and not just the playoffs. And we're a team that can go deep in the playoffs and, and get to the World Series. And certainly, the, the acquisition of Luis Castillo added a lot. That when you go out, of course, uh, we, we just—it's it, it's a good group to be around. Like I said, as the confidence grew. I think, you know, I start talking about it. We're better than just a wild card team, and we're not finished, and we're just getting started, and all those type of comments that, that I and my coaching staff made, and the players start talking about it, and that's really when you know you got to get going. So we learned a lot uh, ourselves last year, but we're really fired up about, you know, moving this ball down the field and, and looking ahead. Yeah, looking ahead to next year, how do you – Approach and talk about the expectations when you start meeting with your group in a few weeks. Well, I think it's not something you have to have a team meeting and say, okay, guys, here's the expectations this year. Ah, not really wired that way. I think everybody understands, you know, what we've accomplished last year, but it's last year. And then I made a comment oftentimes that each team, each season has its own personality. It really does. Mm. Um, and we look back to 2021 and, we finished the season so strong there. You just thought we were going to continue to roll. And then it wasn't going so easy for us in April and May. And we kind of had to come up with a different identity. And each team takes on its own identity. So as far as the expectations and whatnot, obviously the expectation, you know, the, the goal is, is to win the division. And it ain't going to be easy. Certainly the Astros won it all last year, and then they've got a really good club again. But that's, that's the goal, win the division, get in the playoffs, and see where it goes from there. Who have you been uh, keeping in touch with this off season? Have you checked in on uh, players or are there guys that you've kind of uh, kept a closer watch of others or it's a short one and they've got that this is their time right now? Well, we try to give players space. I think that's really important at this time. We spent so much time together once we get together in Arizona here spring training. You're just with these guys every day. So you get players space, but you, you check just four or five guys that are trying to Maybe make some major changes or overhaul. And the off season is really the time to make a major change. It's so hard 
to make physical adjustments throughout the course of the season as you're trying to go out there and compete at such a high level. So, you know, if you want a guy that's going to change something in his stance or his approach or his swing path, you know, that's constantly going on. Our hitting coaches, and I'm getting updates there, and I'll check in with some guys. Other guys, you know, we, we adjust maybe some of the the off-season workload as they come into spring uh, spring training, you know, with the, the load that George Kirby put on last year. Logan Gilbert, you know, we want to be – I don't want those guys coming out and firing 98 miles an hour on day one of spring training. It does us no good. You know, we, we have to kind of be careful in how we ramp up. And like I mentioned earlier, our, our pitching coaches, our hitting coaches, our staff is really on it and talk with the guys and – you know, it's family. You want to give the guys a little space, but they also want to stay a little bit close enough. So yeah, you, know, you do have an idea where they're at health-wise and making sure they're ready to go. Tell us your thoughts on the addition of Teoscar Hernandez. He can hit homers. <laughs> I know that. We saw it firsthand. Um, he's a very accomplished hitter. Um, he's been you know, one of the more consistent guys. I say that and if you look back at his, his season last year, he got off to just a, a really rough start. I think he... You know, we saw him early in the year when we were in Toronto, and, and probably, frankly, we, we handled him pretty easily. You could just tell his timing was off and whatnot, but he quickly got it right. And you know, that's a guy that's going to do damage, uh, you know, against righties, against lefties, it really doesn't matter. Uh, getting a chance to talk to him, um, he's excited. Uh, he's going to be a great for us. Who are you most interested to get your eyes on this spring? Oh, there's a couple guys. I know that uh, J.P. Crawford has done a lot of work this offseason in the weight room and his strength and conditioning uh, training and what he's doing there. So, you know, anxious to, to see how that looks as we get going with spring training. I think, you know, you're always looking forward to seeing some of the younger players, you know, and you know, I don't think anybody's worked as hard as Jared Kelnick and Taylor Trammell have this offseason trying to make some adjustments in their swing to allow them to be more consistent. So, Definitely uh, anxious to see those guys, uh, see how Tom Murphy's progressing. You know, Murph uh, was out almost the whole year last year, uh, with left shoulder injury. He's back. He's ready to go. He's really anxious. Uh, you know, those are the guys on a roster. I think, you know, uh, the, the Harry Fords, the Bryce Miller, some of the younger players that will be in camp. I'm always anxious to see you hear so much about them. And I know our player development staff, our scouting staff, you know, so high on these players. So getting to be around them every day through spring training is always. Yeah, it's going to be interesting this year with so many different rule changes. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on the shift restriction and how much do you think it will impact the game this year? I think it's going to impact uh, the game quite a bit in, in a positive way. We need more action in our game. You know, you see just pitching just dominating the game here the last few years and how hard it is to get hits and base runners and getting action going on the bases. So uh, eliminating the shift will certainly help that. I think we've got some guys that will take advantage of that. You know, Cal Raleigh and, and, and Derek Kalnick are the left-handed hitters are the ones that are, are hurt by it the most. So I think it's going to be a big change in the game. And also a little change how you look at defensive players. You know, a big part of what we do is run prevention. Uh, driven by our pitching and, and our defense, um, you know Colton Wong is a, is a great uh, you know reputation of being an outstanding defender. So um, a guy that's good, we're going to have to do uh, a good job trying to get him in the right spots on the dirt on the infield. But it'll be a little bit different look. I think fans will like it. Now the pitching side, um, 
Diego Castillo. <laughs> Has there been any pre-work on speeding things up with him with a pitch clock yet? <laughs> it's odd that you bring that up, Shannon. <laughs> it's, uh, um, you know, the, the pitch clock is going to be a little bit of an adjustment. And, uh, you know, the amount of time, you know, you've got 15 seconds time the ball gets in your hand when you're on the dirt to deliver a pitch. It's also going to speed up the hitters. I don't think people realize that. So some hitters like to really slow it down. They like to uh, digest the pitch they just saw and making sure they're clear in their mind what they're looking for as they step in for the next pitch. But the hitter's got to be in box ready to go uh, with eight seconds. It'll affect some guys more than others. Certainly Diego, it's going to be a big thing in spring training games. Um, people will be staring at clock a lot early on until it just becomes you know, part of what we do. So uh, the one thing I know about baseball players is they can adjust. Diego's one that uh, was the top of my list as well, Shannon. We're going to have to talk to him a little bit about that. Hey, do you anticipate with some of the changes that we'll see more out of the running game, baseball-wide? I do, Gary. I think that's going to be the biggest change, uh, along with batting average going up and some more action there. Uh, you're going to have more guys on base. And, you know, everybody said, well, it's a big deal. The you know, bases are going to be a little bit bigger. Uh, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it actually is. And probably one of the bigger things is, you know, you're, the pitchers will be limited to the number of pickoff throws the first base. Mm. You know, once you pick over twice, if you pick over the third time uh, within the course of one at-bat against the same runner over there and he's safe, it's an automatic balk and he moves up a base. Well, Scott, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. We'll see you here uh, coming up in a few weeks. Uh, I look forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me on. And uh, like I said, just a couple of weeks away from spring training and can't wait to get down there and get going with our new club. There it is, Mariners manager Scott Service. You can get all the Mariners action this season with a Flex membership. Choose the games and seats you want all season long. Plus, save at least 10% on tickets. They get priority pre-sale access to the 2023 All-Star Week. Come on board, Mariners.com slash Flex. We have a very fun conversation coming up next. We're going to check in with Dave Cameron, now part of the Mariners front office. We'll talk about his journey, what he does now for the Mariners. All that coming up next as the hot stove continues right after this. The Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hatback Bar and Grill. Welcome back to the Hot Stove. Great to have you with us tonight. Gary Hill, Shannon Dre with you as we get a chance to visit with Dave Cameron, who has just a great job title, Senior Director of Player Procurement for the Seattle Mariners. Dave, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. No, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited that someone else likes my title. I uh, I always have to explain what it is, and so I'm, I'm glad you guys are excited about it. Oh, we're going to ask that question, that's for sure. But first, I want to talk about your background a little bit. I know a lot of Mariner fans are very aware of who you are and your background, but I know there's a lot of Mariner fans who aren't. So for me, uh, I'm excited because when I was reading about the Mariners, you were the first that I remember USS Mariner, Dave Cameron, the first, you know, outside of like the newspaper (laughs) story, the first time I remember reading someone writing about the Mariners. And for me, it was, it was eye opening. It was this whole new world opened up for me. If I were to have told USS Mariner, Dave Cameron, that X number of years later, Dave Cameron would be helping shape the Mariners roster and acquiring players. 
What would you have said? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, like, you know, I even go back to like, you know, growing up in SeaTac, uh, listening to games on the radio, you know, like uh, we didn't have a TV when I was a kid. So like I fell in love with baseball through Dave Meehouse, like talking to me about, you know, Harold Reynolds and Dave Valley and Scott Bankhead and Dave Fleming and all these guys, like, you know, obviously the good teams later, but I grew up with the bad teams. Right. And like in the, the late eighties, early nineties was like kind of my cutting my teeth on baseball and just really like, that kid getting to like have an impact and work for the Seattle Mariners, just like I'm doing, you know, the inner kid inside me is doing backflips. The USS Mariner guy who was like asking Bill Bavese to like not do all the things that he just kept doing over and over, like, you know, asking the organization to like look at players differently uh, for, for me to get to sit in the chair and get to talk to Jerry and Justin and these guys and, and get to weigh in and, and be part of a team uh, building, a, you know, a roster that made the playoffs for the first time in 20 years. And uh, it's just really cool. I mean, this is like, a, you know, I, I'm a writer at heart and, like this is an awesome story. I hope that someone someday uh, writes down like the you know the ridiculousness of my career path because I could not have possibly uh, imagined that this would come to pass. Yeah, it seems like you opened doors though. I mean, to me, it seemed like you were the first really to go from the blog to the front <laughs> office, which was huge. And I mean, Gary and I are geeking out a little bit. We were both huge fans. I actually commented on USS Mariner <laughs> every now and then a long, long time ago. I think under an alias. I'm not sure if I remember <laughs> a long time ago, but uh, just, you know, how does it, when you look back at that, was there any shot in your mind that the, this could turn into that? It was a different kind of access yeah. and a different, different eyes and baseball had, has, you know, now values that. Yeah. I think at that time, I really kind of saw myself as a writer and not like, I didn't see myself as someone working to be in a front office. I think like the people that I saw that teams were hiring were significantly more technical, right? Like they were the PhDs from MIT. They were the guys who could sit down at a computer and build a projection system. They were going after Nate Silver. Like they were going after a different kind of analyst, right? They were going after the more technical kid right out of school who knew machine learning and, you know, robotics and physics. I didn't have any of that, right? Like I was an econ major who was like, I had an accounting background and was running a blog because I missed my team and I lived 3000 miles away. And like, I didn't see myself as kind of like the type of analyst that teams were interested in. I really saw myself as like someone who had always wanted to kind of like write about baseball or talk about baseball. Uh, you know, honestly, like at some point in my career, I thought I was going to be like a talk radio host. Right. And so this was like a kind of modern talk radio, but not live. Right. It was like my, my platform was, uh, was not into a microphone. It was with a keyboard. And so I really saw myself more in that vein. It was like a member of the media, never really imagined, but like this would lead to a, a career on the inside. I think when the Padres called in 2017 and had kind of broached the idea of like, Hey, do you want to work for us? Um, you know, I think at that point, even then I was really skeptical that I would be a good fit for them. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just a writer, right? Like I'm, I'm not what you need. Um, and then having to spend four years in San Diego and now kind of hang out with the Mariners last year and, and be full-time this year, really kind of seeing uh, what a modern front office looks like and that you don't necessarily have to be just the MIT PhD guy who's like really good at robotics or physics or whatever. Like there's spots in the, in the organization for um, people with my skill set has like really been eye opening and, and something surprising. This was definitely not a plan. I didn't start USS Mariner or go to Fangraphs thinking this was going to lead to a career in the front office, uh, but I'm excited that it has. What shaped how you looked at baseball and wrote about baseball in those early days? Man, that's a great question. So I grew up, uh, yeah, like I said, in the South Sound, um, went to a really small school. I didn't have friends who were like diehard baseball fans. My parents were not sports fans. Like it wasn't like a thing in my house, right? I was the baseball fan in our house. We got my parents and my brother into it. Um, but I didn't have friends to like talk baseball with. Uh, so way back in the early 90s, there was a thing called Usenet, which is like uh, basically like kind of Reddit 
kind of like similar to the, today, but you know, not not nearly as well functioned. Uh, so there's a there's a Mariner news group uh, called Alt Baseball Sea Mariners, and there were a bunch of guys on there who you know were 45 years old. I was like 12 or 13 or whatever, right? But they would talk about Bill James and Rob Nyer and the guys who went on to found Baseball Perspectives would post on these things. And so I just found like these really smart, interesting baseball uh, people who I could argue with, and I would tell them what I heard on TV and that they didn't know what they were talking about, and they would tell me that I was just a kid and I should go do my homework. Uh, but I mainly just found a bunch of like older, really intense baseball fans to like kind of just have baseball conversations because I didn't have other 12 or 13 year olds who wanted to talk baseball with. Um, and like I mentioned, like Rob Nyer at that point, at, like I think it was called ESPN Net Sports Zone or something, uh, was writing his columns and was like kind of by Bill James. Uh, and so Rob was kind of like one of the ones who showed me that you could write about kind of nerdier baseball things in less nerdy ways, right? Rob was probably a more approachable writer. Um, and I think Rob was probably the biggest influence on my career early on. Just to be clear, I mean, you were not just a baseball fan. You were a Mariners fan. Yeah, yeah. I was a massive Mariners fan growing up in the South Sound. Dave Meows was my idol. Uh, I wanted to be Dave Meows until I realized that my voice was not not conducive to a long-term career in broadcasting. Um, but yeah, I was, a, I was a huge Mariner fan. Like I mentioned, we didn't have a TV until I was 10. Uh, so I grew up on the radio, listening to games, uh, and then eventually making my parents get me a bus pass so I could take the bus from South Center to, to downtown and go watch games. And I was a, I was a huge Mariner fan. Uh, really, like, I went to Dave Valley's baseball camp when I was 10 years old, and actually, like, I I met Randy Johnson after he got traded and like he was the guy at the table that no one wanted his autograph because he wasn't famous at that time. Julio Cruz was like two tables over and everyone was standing in line for Julio Cruz. And I just went and hung out with like this 6'10 gangly Randy Johnson guy <laughs> who no one had ever heard of. So uh, I was a huge Mariner fan early in, in my life and, and, you know, obviously remain a big Mariner fan uh, today. I have to ask, it was one of my favorite scenes on clinch night when we got let into the clubhouse. There you were. And it yeah, just all cool. seemed to come full, full circle. What was that like for you? It was amazing. I mean, you know, realistically for Jerry and Justin to make room for me uh, to be in that space, to get to watch these guys celebrate 20 years of frustration kind of coming to an end. And like just how much it meant for the city to be able to be in the, in the clubhouse watching these guys dump champagne on each other. Uh, really just a surreal moment. Like one of those things that I will remember for the rest of my life, for sure. Well, given Dave Niehaus was your idol this spring, we've got to have you call a couple of batters. We've got to be in the booth. We've got to hear some Dave Cameron play-by-play of a couple of batters. We have to. I will do my best. I will not have any good catchphrases. I don't have any rye breads. I don't have the my oh my, but I'll, I'll do my best to not embarrass myself. <laughs> well, I think about what you were writing about at the time, and it was it was so different than everything else. And now... You know, it's more mainstream to watch the progression. What do you think about the progression when you see where everything has gone? I mean, it's fascinating, right? I think like, you know, Jeff Sullivan, who uh, wrote a look at landing another Mariner blog, you know, he works in Tampa Bay Rays now. Him and I are still good friends. We talk about this all the time. I actually think one of the interesting things, if you look at these pockets of like where baseball writers come from, like Bill James and Rob Nyer and Randy Gisarelli and Jeff Passan are all from Kansas City, right? And like Jeff and I, and there's others who have come in here out out of Seattle. I actually think like writing about a losing team and following a losing team that is like just really behind and the Mariners were like just really behind in how they viewed player analysis for a long time. It actually is. It does like spark some kind of like ability for outside thinkers to just have a voice. Right. It's so, like, if you're, if you're writing about the Rays, like, uh, you know, I'm sure there are really good Rays bloggers out there, but it's probably really hard to just be like, they did the smart thing again. You know, like it's like a really <laughs> difficult column to write. It's like, yep, they made another good trade and we're going to have a small payroll and somehow win anyway. Right. Like that's, this is probably just like a difficult column to write every single time they make a transaction. Um, but I think the, you know, the Mariners or for the, the Royals and the Bill James, Rob, 
Meyer days, uh, have just created a lot of fodder for like interesting conversation. Like, what else could they have done? Literally anything. They could have done anything else. They didn't have to acquire Carl Everett and hit him fourth, right? Like, uh, there were a bunch of different decisions they could have made along the way. Um, and so I think like just the fact that the team was really bad from 2003 to 2019 or whatever, uh, created a bit of a fertile ground for people like me to just have a voice, to have conversations about how the organization could pivot, how they can do things differently, how they can look at players differently. Uh, I think if I had been, if I had grown up in, you know, the Bronx or something and just wrote about the Yankees instead, I probably wouldn't have had a baseball career because like, it's just a lot harder to write about teams and just win a hundred games every year. Yeah. We're visiting with Dave Cameron, Senior Director of Player Procurement. And yes, we are going to ask the question what that is. When we come back, it's the hot stove. We'll be back with more right after this. The Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hotback Bar and Grill. Welcome back to the Hot Stove. Great to have you with us. Gary Hill, Shannon Dreyer, Dave Cameron, Senior Director of Player Procurement. Now, You've said you described what this means. So tell everyone, what exactly does this mean? Yeah. So I think uh, when Jerry was uh, trying to come up with a title for like, what I was going to do here, uh, you know, the Mariners already have a lot of people who kind of live in the spaces that I, you know, what I did in San Diego, I kind of like oversaw the RN research and development team, the analytics team with the Padres, obviously managed fan graphs for a long time, uh, overseeing a bunch of analysts and the Mariners already have that, right? Like they have a really well built out Jesse Smith, Joel Furman, a bunch of these guys who've been here for a long time, already running the analytics departments. They didn't need that. And so like um, trying to figure out where I would fit, it was much more of like a let's come up with an idea that like complements what already exists. I'm not here to like build something new. The Mariners are no longer behind. Like they've got really smart people doing really smart things. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why the team is good now. And so I think what we just talked through is like one of the things that I like doing is player evaluation. Right. And so like there are aspects of kind of building models and doing the technical work that I can you know, sit in and, and be part of a meeting on, but I don't need to oversee that stuff. There are people way smarter than me doing that now. Um, and so I can just be on the side, on the side of the room and not really have like a, you know, a real strong hand in, in what's being done there. But I, when it comes to like, Hey, which player should we acquire? Do we want to play right field? Uh, you know, what, uh, what player in the draft do we want to talk about? Um, are there interesting international players coming over from Japan or Korea or, you know, are there interesting markets emerging where you could go get new talent and should we go scout those areas? This is just an area that is always, uh, you know, been of interest to me. It's something I wrote about a ton at USS Mariner and Fangraphs over the years. Um, and so we just kind of like carved out a player evaluation space where I can be part of the team that talks about players. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, kind of any, any acquisition of, of a player coming to the organization, um, I can just be part of the conversation. Right. And so I don't have to, I don't have to necessarily run the research and development departments like I did in San Diego. Um, here I can just, you know, sit around with six, seven, eight, nine other people who have expertise in their area and just spitball ideas. And uh, it's a really, it's a really unique job. So I know you're just getting into this, but what do you envision a normal day looking like for you? Yeah, man, it's uh, fascinating. I've realized that there is no such thing as a normal day, right? Every day is pretty different. I do think like one of the things that I'm learning on the inside rather than being on the outside is how many people there are who have like really interesting ideas, really interesting concepts. And right, there's only so many conversations that Jerry and Justin can have throughout the organization. There just isn't time for them to sit down and talk with, you know, 150 people and hear all of their ideas. So I think one of the things that I've 
take it upon myself is like, let me go find some of these people who work in the organization who have really interesting concepts, who, if they had an hour with Jerry or Justin, they would float out something that we should definitely go do. Right. And so I'm trying to put myself in situations where I can find these people who uh, have fascinating concepts, have ideas that can help make the Mariners win the division uh, or make the playoffs for the, you know, the next five, 10 years, um, put myself in situations where I can have conversations with them and then try to figure out how I can surface their ideas or like help be a springboard for their, their concept to get in, in, in like a larger play in the organization. So I think uh, one of the things I'm realizing coming in, you know, over the last four or five months is the Mariners have like a ton of really valuable um, just high level thinkers in place and people who have like uh, chances to really impact this organization. And so a lot of what I'm doing every day is just trying to develop those relationships and develop uh, abilities for, you know, uh, me to be able to take their ideas or take, take them into Jerry and Justin's office and be like, Hey, you should talk to this person. Let's go spend an hour with them, hear what they have to do. So uh, player procurement is definitely like, can be a lonely occupation, just like flipping through leaderboards and flipping through stat pages and being like, I want this guy. But I do think that the Mariners are in a, a really good position to have a lot of people who are looking at players across the board and whatever I can do to, to kind of surface their ideas and kind of build collaboration. Um, that's something that, I've, you know, early on in my Mariner career here has been pretty important to me. Earlier, you alluded to Tampa Bay. You talked about Jesse Smith and Joel Furman and all the smart people in the org. How competitive is it in Major League Baseball finding the next thing or finding that advantage that you're looking for? It's wild. I mean, like, you know, I think when I was writing at USS Mariner, there were like five or 10 teams who had an analyst. And if you had an analyst, you were ahead of the curve, right? And now every single team in baseball has a very large research and development department. I went through and actually did a survey uh, last year looking at like the average size. The average team now has an R&D department, people who like essentially write code uh, somewhere between like 14 and 16 people. That's the average now, right? It was like eight, like three years ago. It was like growing dramatically. Uh, there's a ton of, I would say emphasis on like the player movement space. So like one of the things I think we've seen is like, you know, we used to have box score data, right? Like this guy went two for four with a home run and three RBIs. And then it got into like ball tracking, right? Where you had like the track mandate of the ball was at 112 miles an hour at this angle, or the pitch was thrown with like this amount of break. And so you had ball tracking. Now we're kind of in like the player tracking data where we can really kind of like look at how a player's mechanics move and like his, there's like skeletal breakdowns with you know, really cool high-speed cameras and teams are going very fast in this like player movement direction where instead of saying like okay he hit a home run it's because he hit the ball hard it's like how did he hit the ball hard right we're going even another level down now and so these are like real scientists that would, would go work at you know Carnegie Mellon or something uh, or the University of Washington who would otherwise be trying to solve cancer we're now pulling them into baseball and being like hey can you help this guy hit the ball a little harder or put a little more spin on his curveball uh, I think the level of expertise has just changed dramatically and uh there's some just you know every day i'm just confronted with like some of the smartest people i've ever worked with um and you know there's 50 of them <laughs> you know like in every organization there's just like unbelievably smart people all trying to solve these really interesting problems you're talking exactly about something that has fascinated me with the changes that we have seen with the technology with what we know about human beings and the physiology and, and biomechanics and everything else how do you even evaluate a player anymore? It used to be all three years they are what they are, but I don't think that is necessarily the case anymore when they can go to a driveline, when they can get an evaluation, when they can go to work. How does that impact what you do and how you look at players today and what they are? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I realized about myself is like when I was at Fangraphs, a huge part of what we did was just like tell people to trust the projections. Like there's public projection systems like Zips or Steamer or Dakota Baseball Prospectus that have been out there for years, just like taking an average of the last players, you know, three, four, five years, time waiting it, doing some park adjustments, and basically saying, like, hey, this guy has hit, you know, on average, he's hit 287, he's this old, it's been in this park. This is basically what you can expect. My general feeling now is like, you know, there's still value in that in those kinds of systems. They still do a pretty good job of giving you a baseline but if you don't know that this player just went and added you know three new pitches this offseason or just came up and spent like three months at driveline uh coming up with a pitch design and his slider is going to be an entirely different pitch this year it's nine miles an hour harder it has a totally different break profile he's going to throw it different like he's not the same pitcher he just has a different arsenal than he did a year ago how you're going to run a, a past for historical projection on someone who just changed all of their pitches over the offseason you can't do it right and so i think one of the things we've seen like there's been a huge development on player development you know in in baseball over the last say five years right where players are just becoming uh they're just having access to tools that they haven't had access to previously information they haven't had previously and i just don't i think the idea of like a ceiling has just gone away right like they're you know we talk about in the draft like this guy has a high ceiling this guy is like probably more of like a you know bench utility player like a lot of these like mookie betts was a bench utility player until he turned into the second best player in baseball right and like this idea that a player is just kind of limited by what he is and what he's done is just not really true We've seen tons of guys who just overhaul their repertoires, overhaul their strength training, add 20 pounds, get five miles of extra bat speed, whatever it is, they just become physically different players. And I think what we've had to do is really adapt and say like, we're not going to so much look at historical performance to project players going forward. We're looking at their physical skills and we're trying to evaluate, like if you can swing a bat this fast and if you can, uh, you know, make contact on a swing that has like this kind of swing plane. And if you can hit these kinds of pitches in this part of the zone, then you can be a good player. And now we're trying to identify those skills that drive a good player rather than just being like, you've had a good performance for the last three years and you're 28 years old. You're probably going to age pretty well. That just doesn't really work in baseball that well anymore. You know, along those lines, we we talked to Paul Sewell last week, who has changed himself as a pitcher. And obviously, Mariners have seen that the last couple of years. It was interesting in the conversation to think about the organization, the analysts where you're at, the coaching staff and the player and how the synergy all works to benefit the player. How do you think about that? How important is that? that everyone's on the same page. It is the most important thing. So I think like, you know, I mentioned that every team has a bunch of analysts and a bunch of really smart people trying to solve these problems. What every team does not have that I do think the Mariners have, uh, have established really well is that communication like down to the coaches, down to the bottom. And it's like that synergy where like, it's not the analysts lecturing the coach on here's what you need to do. It is two people who believe fundamentally the same thing that they're trying to solve a problem. They're going to work together. They have complementary skills. The coaches are bought in, the players are bought in, the front office is bought in. What I've seen my time in Seattle is a real buy-in from the coaching staff and the players and, you know, on the major league side, the minor league side, all throughout the organization to work with the front office where it is hand in hand. We're going to, tackle this problem together. Uh, I think the idea of like, you know, the old stats versus scouts or the front office versus the coaches, like that's, that's not a thing in Seattle anymore. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Mariners are so successful is like, they're able to bring people like Paul Seawold into the organization and like the coaching staff and the analysts and all the people throughout the entire organization, the biomechanists, everyone can sit down and say like, how can we help Paul Seawold be the best version of himself? Right. And there's a plan put in place. The player can buy in, the coaches can buy in and everyone's, preaching the same thing and helping Paul Seawall become one of the best relievers in baseball. 
It's been fascinating to watch that buy-in, and I think there's some skepticism that you would ever see that at the big league level. But that's baseball now, isn't it? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like you know, the average age of these coaches is like 32 years old or something, right? Like the idea of this like long-term gray beard guy who played in the 70s and like is now your manager. Like there are definitely people like that still around, and like some super valuable experience to have the history of baseball. But I think the ones who uh, are still working in dugouts and are still working with players are ones who have who have adapted to kind of the modern language of baseball and have learned how to connect to the modern player, right? Like players come up now with access to this information. They want it. They, they're craving it. They want their organization to provide them this level of information. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's watching the, you know, the Gabe Kapler have 17 coaches or whatever, like all of these things have changed in baseball. It's just really fascinating to see how fast it all happened. Because I think like, you know, during my early kind of baseball writing career, like the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, things didn't change that fast, right? We would rant about, Hey, maybe we shouldn't bunt with our best hitter all the time uh, for 20 years, right? And teams just kept bunting with their best hitter for, you know, a very long time. Uh, and, you know, it took, it took like, you know, generation essentially to see the adoption of some of these more, you know, sabermetric ideas into baseball and then watching like the on field staff and development and the, the ability to drive information to players change in like five or six years has just been fascinating to see how quickly that happened. You're right. Things have evolved so quickly. Is there always going to be a next? Is there always going to be somewhere to go next? I think so. I mean, like the, the player movement space is like, uh, we're scratching the surface of that. This is not a solved problem. There's no organization out there that knows how to keep their pitchers 100% healthy or how to give everyone an extra 10 miles an hour of velocity uh, or to give every pitcher nine extra inches of sweep on their slider or whatever, right? Like everyone is trying to figure out these problems. We are very early on in the player movement analysis space. And then I think what we've seen is like, you know, Houston 10 years ago did a really good job with the ball tracking stuff. One of the reasons they've had success over the last decade is they were an early mover in that space. Uh, but now the rest of the league has caught up to them and now we're pivoting towards other things. Someone will come out of the player movement space as the leader in the space and understand kinetics and kinematics better than everyone else and get some huge advantages and probably see their p- players stay healthier. And then that people will hire their coaches and people will hire their guys and that will spread across the league. And then you'll need something else, right? So like the investment in this space will get you an advantage for five to 10 years, but there will always be something else, something that someone isn't working on. Uh, I don't think baseball is ever going to be a solved problem. Um, you know, even like something like chess, right. It's been around for hundreds of thousands of years. There's still people working on new ideas of how to play chess. Right. So, uh, I think there's always going to be a next thing. Uh, and I, I look forward to what the next few things are because they're, they're always really fun when you see baseball make the these huge kind of evolutions on itself. I think we could ask what they are, but you won't tell us right now. Right? Uh, I think one, I can't tell you. And two, I'm not smart enough to know what they are. I'm just going to try and hire the smart people who, uh, who find out those ideas and then we'll try and keep them in Seattle as long as we can. Well, I'll ask this. I mean, when we talked about the the advances in technology and how that's helped players, I mean, that is seeming to really be skewing to the pitching right now. When does that come around? When do the hitters get some help? I think the hitters are starting to catch up, right? Like there was definitely a run there for a little while where every pitcher was just coming out throwing 97. Now they throw 94 mile an hour sliders, which, you know, that wasn't a thing. Uh, I think hitters are now figuring out that like there are resources, there are ways for them to go train. Uh, obviously driveline in our backyard is, is probably the most famous, but there's, you know, 
all over the country, there's people working with hitting mechanics and hitting ideas, hitting philosophies. And I do think over the next couple of years, you know, we've even seen like, uh, you know, I'll say like one of the most common kind of ways that teams adjusted over the last five years is to like throw more high fastballs, right? Like that was kind of the way baseball went. It was like throw the carry high, high fastball. It gets above the scoopy swing, the launch angle swing. You can miss the bat at the top of the zone. All these hitters now are training to hit the high fastball, right? And so like we've seen the high fastball it does not play nearly as well as it did three, four years ago, right? Like last year, the high fastball was a hittable pitch in Major League Baseball when five years ago, this thing was just like, you know, if you threw a good carry fastball, you could get a 40% strikeout rate. Um, I do think the hitters are, are catching up, right? And so like as now every pitcher is adding, you know, like these crazy 93 mile an hour sliders, they will train themselves how to hit hard breaking balls. So it's like a new pitch in baseball, right? Like the mid 90s breaking ball is not a thing that they historically had to learn how to hit. They will learn how to hit it and they will adjust. Um, hitters are smart and they're, they're uh, financially motivated to learn how to hit these pitches. I do think in the next year or two, we're going to see hitters catch up. And I think offense will come back in some ways, whether the rules changes allow like the shift, allow hitters to have some advantages or just the monetary incentive for, for players to get better. Right. And I do think hitters will catch up in the next couple of years. Dave, this has been so fun. We appreciate you giving us a lot of time tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the visit. This was fun. Get ready for those innings. Get ready to call those innings in spring training. <laughs> I will, I'll do my best. I'll try and come up with uh, something that will honor Dave and, and not be too embarrassing. Yes, this is happening. This is All happening. Right. Sure. <laughs> there it is. Dave Cameron. We'll come back more hot stove right after this.